0: The Buddha is talking. I teach a doctrine for getting rid of the mind made acquired self, whereby defining mental states disappear and states tending to purification grow strong, and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now, having realized and attained it by one's own super knowledge. Now, Pratapada, you might think, perhaps these defiling mental states might disappear and one still might be unhappy that's not how it should be regarded if defiling states disappear nothing but happiness and delight develops tranquility, mindfulness and clear awareness clear comprehension for so and that is a happy state so first in the Buddha says this about the gross acquired self, the body that we are identifying with the body And now he's saying it about the mind-made, acquired self, which are the three kinds of self that the uh, Puttapada has uh, stipulated are uh, possible to have. And the mind-made, of course, it comes to task when we identify ourselves with our own mind. Now, maybe at this point, we could have a look at the purification of the defiling mental state. And the gaining and remaining in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now the mental states in the Buddhist terminology concern not just the thinking but also the emotions so the purification of the emotions is also included here and To remain in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now means of course insight. But the purification that goes on until we get to the inside means that we have to deal with both with our mind, mental states and our emotional states, which the Buddha very often or well, practically always does not distinguish. There's no distinction between mental and emotional because it all falls under the same heading. Chitta, which is sometimes translated as heart and sometimes translated as mind, it just contains a whole lot. Now, the purification of our emotional states and our mental states have a very distinctive and quite direct formula for them. Now, I have already mentioned to you the formula for the mental state. I'll repeat it. It's probably one of the most important aspects of the teaching if we take steps to actualize this this, uh, formula. I have mentioned it at the time when I was talking about right effort because they are called the four supreme efforts, called the padanas, which are the four supreme efforts not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen now obviously a meditator has a great advantage there because he or she is not necessarily believing everything that's the thought are proclaiming. A person who's never meditated usually believes what he or she is thinking. However, meditators also tend to do that. I mean, we're not immune from this. We also believe what we're thinking. But we might be more inclined to investigate it. And so we have this formula for the four ways of dealing with our mind, which means that we do not believe it if it is unwholesome, not profitable not skillful not beneficial when it is anything that's negative we don't believe it we know it's there but we don't try to react to it we don't try to continue with it but try to change it substitute it with something else something wholesome if we practice like that in everyday life purification is bound to happen combined with the meditative absorption the meditative absorptions are the automatic purification system but for that matter any concentration no matter how short-lived it is is a purification system one moment of concentration is one moment of purification And by the same token, one moment of mindfulness is one moment of purification. Luckily, we can't do two things at the same time. We're either concentrated or have an unwholesome thought. We are either mindful or we have an unwholesome thought. It's either one or the other. So anything that we can do in those two directions, naturally, the more mindful we are, the more concentrated we are, the more of a purification system we have but anything we can do in those directions will be of great benefit but it has to be coupled with watching our thoughts during the day and particularly here where we are in a retreat which is a quiet situation we have a possibility to watch our thoughts rather than having to react to them as we are often called to do in the um, worldly life because things do happen rather quickly and one has to do something because otherwise things just don't seem to continue here we don't have to do anything we have to uh, we have the time to investigate what this thought is and change it now the ideal thing is to drop the unwholesome but that's difficult because the mind has to latch on to something You know very well from the meditation practice that the mind's always looking for something to latch on to. Whether it's wholesome or profitable or not, it wants something. So the same is in daily living and even worse. The mind needs something. So instead of the unwholesome thoughts, we can put something in which is quite neutral if we can't make it wholesome. We can take our mind off that and put it on something entirely different until our anger or upset or fear or anxiety has subsided again. And we can continue thinking about the same subject or the same person with equanimity. We don't have to continue thinking like on on the uh, unwholesome line. Now, the first um, instruction is of course the most difficult. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen, makes it a very difficult thing to do. It takes enormous mindfulness. But since we are, hopefully, learning mindfulness, we could eventually become quite aware of an unwholesome thought which is in the offing. It hasn't arisen yet, but it's on its way. And what it does it sends an unpleasant feeling ahead it's a feeling of well it could be like mildly depressed Uh, it can be a feeling of heaviness fogginess a feeling of um, an unpleasant feeling some sort of unpleasant feeling and because the unpleasant feeling is there if we don't watch out and now put the mind immediately on something wholesome we will try to find a reason for the unpleasant feeling and de- naturally that will be something negative so if we don't watch through mindfulness we are caught in a vicious circle because the minute we have that negative thought then we get another unpleasant feeling which creates another unpleasant thought and another unpleasant feeling and so on and there is a, a circular movement of the mind which we can only get out of if we watch it So it is possible to become aware of the um, unwholesome thought before it arises, but it is difficult. You certainly can be aware of it when it has arisen. And a meditator must learn to disbelieve it and be able to look somewhere else. It is exactly the same action as having a distracting thought in meditation dropping it and going back to the breath, substituting the thought with the breath. Exactly the same action. And this is a very important action. And it's the only thing that we can do about our thinking that will bring peacefulness. So the defiling mental states, when they disappear, happiness and delight develops. Well, everybody wants happiness and delight. And having it in meditation is very nice and very—it's very, um, um, it's very uh, advantageous. But it's not enough because we don't walk around in meditation. So to do the to do this work of getting rid of the defiling mental state is a constant business, all the time. And if the mind has nothing that can be can arouse joy or is elevating to the mind we can deliberately put it in we can put it in through any kind of devotion we feel for Buddha Dhamma Sangha we can put it in through any kind of love we feel for either a person or an ideal we can put it in by remembering any of the Buddhist teachings which have given us joy anything at all we can put it in and once in there we can keep it and this is the instruction and with that the defining mental states will become less and less and happiness and delight will become more and more <coughs> what is necessary is mindfulness and clear comprehension these are the two that are the the tools for doing it But we also have to deal with our emotional state. And the emotional states that we deal with have an exactly four um, instructions also. Namely, that the four, the only four emotions which are worth cultivating, developing, and keeping are the four Brahma Viharas, the Divine Abodes, or the supreme emotions loving kindness, compassion joy with others and equanimity all other emotions can profitably be discarded now that's quite a tall order because usually people have many different emotions and very often a mixed bag and can't even pinpoint which one it is because it all arises together and it seems to have something in it which is justifiable well the Buddha said nothing is justifiable that does not have those four out of those four equanimity is the the greatest and the most desirable and it is the one that is also mentioned as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and it has with it an inner feeling of peacefulness. Equanimity and peacefulness, one could say, are synonymous. And since everybody would like to have inner peacefulness, that is the one to develop. Now, equanimity very often sounds to people as if it's dull. One doesn't get any highs, one doesn't get any lows. One stays on an even keel. But most people who've had enough highs and enough lows are quite willing to try out what it's like to be on an even keel. Now, equanimity does not contain the idea that people have of dryness and uh, like an uh, escape from the world. It doesn't have that at all. One of the verses in the Mahamangala Sutta, in the Great Blessings Discourse, at the very end of it, describes an arahant and says, Although touched by worldly circumstance, never his mind is wavering. Touched by the world, the mind does not waver because it has complete equanimity. But that, of course, only holds true for an Arahant. But maybe we could have an idea how far removed we are from being an Arahant by checking up on our equanimity. When things don't go the way we want them to go. It's very easy to have equanimity when everything works perfectly But what happens when it doesn't. Equanimity is not indifference. It's a very uh, distinctive um, difference between the two because indifference is a kind of emotion that is like a protection, one puts a protection around oneself where one doesn't wish to be touched emotionally because one can't trust one's own reactions. Most people can't trust their own reactions, which creates fear and anxiety and dislike. Only when we begin to be able to trust our own reactions, emotional reactions, can we feel safe and secure. Now, how do we learn to trust our own reactions? Through the development and cultivating of loving-kindness and compassion so that whatever happens, hate and dislike does not arise. Now, when those two arise, that is the insecurity we feel because we know not only that it feels unpleasant, very unpleasant in oneself, it also creates fear because we're afraid that the other person is going to react in the same way. We always use the world around us as a mirror. It's the only way we can use it. It's impossible to see something in the world and people around us that doesn't exist within us. There's no way we can see it. That's why we say, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. We wouldn't know when we meet one. And if he told us he was a Buddha, we'd probably sneer because we wouldn't have a clue what a Buddha is like so we know very well what an angry person is like because we've been angry ourselves and we know exactly what that's like but we have no idea what an enlightened person is like because we haven't been enlightened so the people around us are a direct mirror for ourselves but we see only what we know in ourselves. We can see what we have known about ourselves in the past. If we don't know ourselves, we only see fog. We don't know what it, what's going on in the other person. That's why the Buddha says, the whole of the universe, or oh monks, lies in this mind and body. The whole of the universe. All we have to do is investigate ourselves to have any kind of reaction to others which is not love, compassion, joy with others or equanimity is foolishness it only hurts the one who's got it the foolishness which humanity perpetrates constantly is legion And that's why the history of humanity looks as it does. But we do not have to continue that. We can make a stop to it for ourselves. Indifference is supposed to protect us from our own unwholesome emotions. What it does is it cuts us off, because that's what we can do. That's the only thing we can do. We can either purify our emotions or cut ourselves off. And when we cut ourselves off, then, of course, we don't feel as if we are participating. It's often done by people whose negative emotions are so strong that they feel very unhappy every time they come up. So they find that as an escape route. Of course, it isn't because one has to get out of that again in order to develop the other four joy with others has as a, as a far enemy envy as a near enemy it has hypocrisy which is common enough because we say things we don't mean it's a very unfortunate habit that humanity has to say things they don't mean and hoping that the other person is going to believe it. Because everybody has done it already, nobody believes it. Because one can see oneself quite clearly in the other person and know exactly that that person is doing nothing but saying things they don't mean. We've all done it, so we know exactly that that's going on. So the sooner one stops that, the better. The only thing that people are interested in, really interested in, is the reality that comes from truth and from the heart. But hypocrisy is a widespread parlor game. And it's supposed to be necessary for polite society. It isn't. Love is necessary for polite society, but not hypocrisy. So in order to get rid of these two difficulties, envy, jealousy, and hypocrisy, three difficulties, our experience of totality makes it very simple. The experience in meditation of a totality of existence makes it very simple to know that it doesn't matter at all to whom something good is happening. Makes no difference. The main thing is that something good is happening. It doesn't have to happen to me. It can happen to anyone because it's all one creation. But now those are words which do not have a reality behind them unless one has experienced it. So, one's got his struggle To be very happy when something nice happens to somebody else. The reason we can actually practice that is because it creates happiness within. And this happiness comes about not because we got something, but because we are giving our joy to the other person. And because it creates happiness, we can actually practice it. If we have already experienced that creation is one, and that it doesn't matter what happens there, as long as something good is going on then we don't even have to struggle anymore it's natural the struggle is well worthwhile because the happiness arises far more often than, and as if we are waiting that we personally get something we don't always get something that we want The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. And the near enemy is pity. And that's interesting because pity appears to be something desirable. I'm so sorry for them or for him or for her. Well, that's pity. And that is a separation effect. And it also includes that one is glad it isn't happening to oneself. Whereas compassion is a totally different. Aspect of emotion compassion is feeling with a person and knowing that we're all in the same boat no difference human beings are human beings they all look a little bit different but in reality what's going on inside is all one and the same and it has been the same ever since humanity has been around It was the same in the time of the Buddha, two and a half thousand years ago. Nothing has changed. Everybody's got the same dukkha. We give it different names, obviously, but that doesn't matter. That's only name-giving. So compassion, the with-feeling, the empathy with other people, comes about through the insight into our own dukkha. It comes about through the insight again into creation as one, we're all in the same uh, predicament of unenlightened beings and it creates a feeling of togetherness of non-separation, of not being threatened of giving instead of trying to get and again it creates a feeling of security within because we know how we will react to somebody else's dukkha. We're not going to start crying and lamenting about it, which means that we have created double dukkha. We're going to have compassion instead. And compassion is a feeling which elevates, it's a feeling which is pure, and because of that, the inner security and safety feeling arises that we have a basis on which to relate to others now obviously all these four are not only relating to others they are particularly also relating to oneself we need to have the same relationship to ourselves as we have to others but they come into force, real force, when it concerns our relationship with other people. And because this is usually our worst feature, relating to others, that's how we get all these family problems and uh, national problems and international problems because we can't relate to each other properly because we're always thinking we can hide behind some sort of screen that invisi- makes us invisible from others all we have to do is mouth a few polite words and everything we find because of this um, absurdity we don't learn to relate properly we can't hide behind a, a screen and be invisible because whatever it is that others have done they can see quite clearly it's a mirror image and because it is there, this understanding of the other person, which has to, be, needs not be verbal at all, totally non-verbal, it's much wiser and much more satisfying to relate on a basis which is heart-to-heart, rather than trying to hide behind something which isn't actually a hiding place. Our relationship to ourselves will color all relationships we have with other people. If we don't like ourselves, we certainly won't like other people. It's a mirror image. How could we? We don't like this, so we don't like the mirror image either. Why should that change? People often think that they can do loving-kindness meditation towards others and not towards themselves. It's unfortunately, an imagination. What we don't feel for ourselves, we can't feel for others. Jesus expressed, expressed that very nicely when he said, Love thy neighbor as thyself. You can only love your neighbor the way you love yourself. No other way. Do it exactly the same way it'll be fine. But you first got to love yourself first love and compassion for oneself joy with anything good that happens not harping on the negative side and equanimity with whatever arises because it will pass away again it has to everything that arises passes away so whatever it is there is nothing worth Worrying about nothing. But everything that is wholesome is worth doing. To worry about it is an aberration of the mind. It concerns the future or the past or some idea that we have put in the mind, an acquired self idea. Love is the thing that we know least about, and we write books about it, make movies about it, dream about it, hope for it, regret it, change it around, and nothing ever comes of it, because we haven't got a clue what it really is. Love has its far enemy hate, of course, but as its near-enemy, it has attachment. Love has an enemy of attachment, a near-enemy, because it appears to be something that is love, being attached to some people. Now, obviously, there is some love included in that, but that kind of love is colored and discolored, I should say, with fear. With the fear of losing those particular people that have our love. And fear is the same as hate. We can't fear what we love, we can only fear what we hate. Now, we don't hate those people that we love. We hate the idea that they're going to get lost. They They can die. They can no longer be interested in us walk away move away change their mind that people do so it's never pure attachment is never the purity of love it's always the wanting to keep and love is something that's supposed to be giving only so it has to become unconditional and not concerned with somebody special as long as it's concerned with somebody special we have limited it we have given it a cage in which it has to find its comfort in such a limited place that it gets squashed and it's always because of the worry and the fear that these people are not going to be there indefinitely it's never without some anxiety what the Buddha talks about when he talks about metta m-e-t-t-a which is loving-kindness but unconditional love can be also said like translated It talks about the cultivation of our heart quality. Just like intelligence is the quality of the mind, so love is the quality of the heart. And it has absolutely nothing to do with who is there, who is going to get it, whether anybody wants it, whether they're going to get it back. It has nothing to do with it. It is nothing but this, cultivation and development of a heart quality which includes everybody and which is a giving of care and concern and warmth of a feeling of togetherness of being grateful and delighted to be able to love gratitude in one's heart that one is able to love strengthens that love the misery of not loving is a misery of most people they're always waiting for Prince Charming or maybe Princess Charming I have to have it both ways don't we? so that we can finally love somebody and then if that Prince or Princess do not appear or one finds out in due course that they aren't really a Prince or a Princess but just as ordinary as we ourselves are then of course no love and then the same dryness within and the same fear of reacting badly the same fear of having this unpleasantness arise again and having that come back to one from the other person and the same search again to find someone—it's quite a big business these days, where people make applications so that you can be, that a partner can be found for them. Quite a good get- going business, I understand. one of the problems with love is that it's always a business because we want to get back what we give so it's a marketplace reality we want to be loved at least as much as we love preferably just a little more love is not a business we have denigrated it to that. It's not just us, it's been done by humanity always, because we don't understand our potential. We don't understand our inner purity, because we don't get to see it. We believe the first thing that comes along, instead of trying to find out what really is, What really is that love is a quality that anybody and everybody can develop. And once they do, happiness and delight arises. There's a feeling of safety and security because that is what one carries around in one's heart. No difficulty then. People are difficult, certainly. We all are difficult. But is that a reason not to love? If that were a reason not to love, nobody would love anybody. Anybody who is not enlightened is difficult. Mostly to him or herself. And then always spilling a bit over to others. Some more so than others. But what difference does that make? Is it any reason not to be intelligent just because There are no equations to solve or no uh, philosophers to read. Does that mean that we give up all the intelligence in our mind? We wouldn't dream of it. We're glad we've got it. Why do we give up and not even cultivate the loving quality in our heart? Just because there doesn't seem to be anybody around that is going to give it back. The one who's got the love and gives it out is the only one who feels it, truly. That others can feel a bit of it is a second result of it. But the one who's got it is the one who has love and doesn't have to look for anybody to love him. It's very nice if somebody loves one. Why is it not? Nice? an ego support system. I am ever so lovable. And then that person changes his or her mind and it's a tragedy because all of a sudden I am not so lovable. Why? What has changed? Nothing but the mind of the other person. Do we really want to be depend upon that for the rest of this life? It's a most absurd situation that people voluntarily put themselves in. To be dependent upon another person's emotion to find out whether they're lovable or not. To be lovable is not even interesting, but to love, that is. So if we develop our own heart, quality of love, then we've got love. We don't have to look for anybody to do it for us, because the other person would then have the love. We wouldn't. And the more of this love we give away, the more we've got. A wonderful law of nature, which works without fail, and which most people disregard totally, just like we usually disregard the laws of nature. We are all subject to them, but we don't seem to like them very much. They don't seem to fit into our dreams, into our schemes, and therefore we like to negate them or even get rid of them. The law of nature is that we all decay and die. We always want to forget about it. We don't want to have it true. The law of nature is that the more we love, the more we give away of love, the more we've got. Very few people try. There are some, of course. But most people are looking for somebody to love them. Just the opposite of what the Buddha taught. I must say what all spiritual um, disciplines teach. There's not a spiritual discipline that is worth knowing about that doesn't teach that. So what we have here are what we have here are purification systems for heart and mind which we need to describe as such because we do make that distinction in our own understanding that there is the feeling aspect and the thinking aspect in the Buddha's language the distinction is not made because chitta, the mind contains the four aspects in which feeling is one So here we do include that. So we have the uh, opportunity to let the defining states disappear, purify, and then because of this purification, and only with purification, can we gain the true insight. If it was not necessary to purify like this, we could gain insight by just hearing about impermanence, dukkha, and non-self. It's very difficult to argue with impermanence. It's quite clear, isn't it, Impermanence. I mean, nobody argues with it. Or let's say hardly anybody, I don't know, they'll exaggerate. But we can't get enlightened that way because of the lack of purity. When there is no purity within, our deepest understanding is blocked because of the impurity. So we have to have a purification pathway. And the path of the Buddha is often called the path of purification. The most famous commentary to the Buddha's teaching is the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. That's the translation for it. We have the four ways of purifying the mind, the mental states, I should say, and the four ways of purifying the emotional states. Now, these are aspects of work, spiritual work, in everyday life, outside of meditation. Now, naturally, we have to have the meditation in order to support that, in order to give it the impetus that without the concentration would never happen, it's very difficult to change all one's dislikes. And it actually goes along the path of the absorption. Not only do we stay concentrated a long time and therefore purify, but also we gain access to different states of consciousness as we have already discussed here. And these different states of consciousness give us a new worldview where the personality problem that each person has is no longer so major. A personality problem, with that I mean the problem of trying to protect and be that personality, having that person there. When we gain access to other states of consciousness, our whole worldview changes. And all the things that are happening to us in daily life, small and minor or even major, are embedded in this greater worldview. So they no longer have the same impact that they used to have which is also part of the purification system. So the jhanas are the most important purification system, but they cannot be left only to their own devices. We have to work on it in daily life also. And we have those instructions of the Buddha. And again, the doctrine for getting rid of the mind-made acquired self That's what the Buddha is talking about. The doctrine of getting rid of the mind-made acquired self. We've already gone through the was-acquired self, now we're getting rid of the mind-made acquired self. The purification system. And then when the defiling states have disappeared, and we have become mindful and have pure comprehension, and the tranquility has arisen, then the inner states that are happiness and delight. Are developed to the point where the purity of wisdom arises now this is the, the progression of the, of the practice which shows quite clearly that each step has to be taken we can never um, leave one out we have to take all of the steps there are no shortcuts sometimes that it is taught that there are shortcuts. But there aren't. If there were, I'm sure the Buddha would have mentioned them. I'm sure they would have because it's all he was interested in for people to get enlightened. That's all he cared about. And this is all that the teaching actually is directed to. Whether we get there or not is a second matter. It's not of the greatest importance. I have not continued on the insight path today because I wanted to first get to the purification pathway. Now we've talked about the purification pathway and tomorrow I'll go on with the several steps of insight. Now you could ask some questions if you like. Is the feeling of compassion never the same feeling as the jhana? A third jhana? No. What's the difference? I would say that in the third jhana you're approaching equanimity. maybe not total equanimity, but certainly something that is uh, very near to equanimity, getting near there. Um, That's the difference. Now, you want to find a description of compassion in the jhanas. But you can use the jhanas. Namely, you can Go back in your, when you see somebody that is having uh, troubles, right? Or you see somebody whom you don't like. You can immediately remember the joy you had when you were doing the jhanas and have compassion because maybe that person hasn't learned it yet. So they don't have that uh, joy that you had, if you have it. And uh, maybe that will help to arouse compassion. That, that person may be having dukkha and not having this opportunity. the possibility. But a direct feeling of compassion is not in any of the jhanas. Would you please describe it? What compassion feels like. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it has at its base a complete well, not complete, but a, a very strong understanding of the Dukkha of the other person. And this understanding, which is inside, of the Dukkha of the other person brings about a feeling of closeness with the other person, because oneself has also had Dukkha, or has it, or has had it. And that closeness then, showing oneself that this other person is the same and is having real troubles and feeling badly that feeling of closeness and the feeling that this other person is feeling badly brings about a feeling of, of caring for the other person so I can feel warm uh, do you mean warm as opposed to cold or do you feel warm like a um, strong feeling in the heart Yes, certainly. Sure. So it really might feel more, if it felt like any jhana feeling, more like second jhana feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Second jhana is joy. Some people have a very warm feeling in the first jhana, but that's a very physical. Second jhana is joy. It's not compassion. It's having a very close connection to another person's lookup and thereby caring, being caring. I think that's about the best I can say about it. If I think of something else, I'll let you know. I can't think of anything else now. Anything else? Any other? Yes? You said it it, it wasn't important to get uh, enlightened. uh, Why why is it one Or have I misunderstood? I never said that. I said, all the teaching leads to enlightenment. Whether we get there or not is a second matter. Luckily, I do remember. It's not supposed to arouse an achievement syndrome. <laughs> anything else please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments Back with your mind into the past of this life and collect all the memories of the times that you have been really loving compassionate helping caring for others when there was purity in heart and mind of thought and emotion try to collect as many memories as you can find and put those into your heart those feelings that you had then love compassion helpfulness purity fill your heart with as many memories as you can bring about re-arouse that feeling that you had then Let those feelings of love and compassion, caring, helpful, purity fill you, surround you, bring you joy. We arouse those feelings from the past again. They may have been in meditation, purity. They may have been towards another person in a certain situation. Let those feelings come up that you knew them. Focus on the one that's the strongest. That you can rearouse the best. Whether it may be love or helpfulness, care, purity, giving up, giving use the one that is the strongest and give this feeling to any person whom you think really is in need of help at this time anyone you know or can just imagine From this feeling, fill your heart again. Let it be a totality of all the pure and good feelings you've had in the past. Bring them all together. That the heart has love and compassion and purity. The strength of that many feelings. Open the heart and let them flow out. Flow out into this room. Filling this room and everybody in it. filling the whole house filling the whole of nature around us the whole of the area, trees and water, and it flow further in all directions. The best. And the purest that your heart can give North and South and East and West, let it flow wherever it will, touching. All of nature, all the creatures, people, beings that we can't see of goodness and purity that is in your heart and goes out of it. can on this globe outward into the universe attention back on yourself and notice the strength and the power that goodness and purity have. Feel that in your own heart let it pervade you become one with goodness and purity yourself as a channel that can channel goodness and purity so that it may go outward from your heart Feel your connection to the whole of goodness and purity existing in the universe. Let this connection actualize. Feel it. Feel the strength and the power that comes to your heart that you can then allow to flow in all directions Goodness and purity be all pervading